You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, before we begin, uh, we have Redemption Hill Kids today for kids ages 5 to 10. And if you want to go with Mr. Aaron, though, there's a table right outside that door that they'll be hanging out at. Aaron brought a sword, so I don't know what that has to do with the, t- the lesson. Plastic sword. Plastic sword's no fun. All right. As you know, we're still in our sermon series, United in Christ, as we continue our journey in the book of Ephesians, right? That's how we prefer to go through the Bible, is go slowly, see all that God has for us. And so we've got five more verses to contend with this morning. And just as a, re- a reminder of a little bit of how the book of Ephesians is shaped. So you have chapters one through three, which is like heavy theology, Like, if you want to know about God, read Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3. If you want to know what it means for you to be made right with God, read Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3. And then we get to Ephesians 4. Now now our head is in this idea of, like, what does it mean to live out the Christian faith? What does it mean to believe not only all these truths, but now we got to put it into practice? And as you can tell, I mean... As you heard or as you can read, that we're seeing a lot of practice here this morning. And so I'm just going to briefly ask for God's help, and then we'll get into Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 5. Heavenly Father, indeed, what I need is your help. I am a fallible man who's in desperate need for help from the Holy Spirit. And so as we look at your word May your truth be communicated this morning. May all of our hearts be receptive to what you have to say. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When I uh, titled this sermon, uh, Walk This Way, (laughs) a song came to mind. (laughs) Um, If you're my age or older, you've heard this song at some point, you know, Aerosmith, and, you know, Walk This Way. I'm not going to do, like, the the high-pitched Aerosmith voice. And then at some point along the way in the 80s, this rap group named Run DMC collaborated with Aerosmith, and then the song became super popular. Uh, I've heard it hundreds of times on the radio, and then at school dance, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, walk this way. I, I, I couldn't help myself, but I had to listen to the song um, this week. And I did something that I had never done prior, is I actually read the lyrics while listening to the song. <laughs> I don't recommend it, necessarily. And I won't read to you the lyrics, but the contrast from uh, the song and what we see today in God's Word in terms of what it means to walk in love could not be more stark. God calls Christians to, to walk in love. That's what we read today, and that's what we're going to get into. And love is understood in terms of self-sacrifice. The world wants you to walk in love. But love is understood as fulfilling self-centered desires that pour forth from a corrupted heart. The song, Walk This Way, is about fulfilling those carnal desires. I mean, it's, it's 
got a good beat to the song, you know. That's why I listen to it all these, you know, all the time. You're like, hey, I know that. But when, actually, when you read the lyrics, you're just like, whoa. That's a different way of looking at love. And that is certainly not congruent with what God says in his word. There are two distinct paths that do not intersect here. You can't walk in the ways of the Lord and walk in the ways of the world at the same time. So there's two options before you and before me this morning. Will you walk in a way outlined by the Apostle Paul or will you walk in a way that is outlined by Stephen Tyler, the, the lead um, guy for Aerosmith, right? Perhaps you've noticed that the act of walking is often associated with this theological word we use as, is called sanctification. Oftentimes walking is associated with sanctification, meaning the Christian walk is associated with, with growing into maturity. We've spent a lot of time in the book of Ephesians talking about what it means to grow into maturity as a Christian. So let's dip outside of Ephesians for a moment to see what walking looks like in other passages. Colossians 1 says this, walk in a manner, there's that same Greek word there, walk in a manner worthy of what? Of the Lord. And then we get to 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, there's that same word, we walk by faith and not by sight. Then all these passages referencing, referencing the Christian walk, again, the same Greek word is being used, trying to con- convey the same idea. When you're walking, you are going somewhere. The question is, where are you going? How you walk and the choices you make indicate who you are and certainly it indicates where you are going. How you walk, the choices you make, indicates who you are and where you are going. As we hone in now on the book of Ephesians, the concept of walking out your faith has come up two prior times in Ephesians. First, we see it in Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 16. We are to, here's that word again, walk in holiness. Same chapter, latter part of chapter 4, we, we read we're supposed to walk in unity. So we have walk in unity, walk in holiness. Now we have walk in love as we get into chapter 5. What Paul is getting at when he writes to the church in Ephesus is that your conduct as a disciple of Jesus Christ is fundamentally different from the conduct of the world. Like, how do people know that you're different? Like, right? How do they know? Hopefully they can see it in your life. They see it with your conduct. And as we saw several weeks ago, there's a difference between, you know, remember that, how this old man is connected to Adam, but this, this new man, this, this new self, who you are, is connected to who? Jesus? Who you are today, Christian, is radically different from who you were before. Therefore, how you walk day in and day out matters to God. If God has saved you by the grace of the gospel, then you are to reflect God by how you walk. And as we see in our passage, and as I've said already, there are two ways to walk. You can walk in love or you can walk in idolatry. You can walk in a manner worthy of the gospel or you can walk in rebellion to God. Those are your options. 
I have one disclaimer before getting in to verses 1 to 5 of chapter 5. I assume that if you are a Christian, you will fight remaining sin, right? The whole point of sanctification is that you work out your salvation. You continue to fight your sin with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who has saved you, but this life is hard. I get that. That's the assumption that's on the table here. You fight remaining sin until either one of two things happens. Either you die (laughs) or Jesus returns. Another way to think think about it is that the Christian life isn't about where you've been. It's about where you're going. Where are you going? What are you walking toward? I already stated in this passage that it tells you, you can walk in love or you can walk in self-idolatry. Now, if you're wondering, what do you mean, Sean, by self-idolatry? I will get there here in a few minutes. But let's first look at what it means to walk in love. Let's, let's look at verses one, and two, verses 1 and 2 again. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved or as loved children and walk in love as Christ loved. So we have beloved Love, love, same Greek word agape in each of those instances in these two verses. As Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Okay, here is the argument being made by Paul. As a child who is loved by God, you need to imitate God. You might remember in Ephesians 2.3, it says that you were by nature a child of wrath. Remember that strong language? You were a child of wrath in Ephesians 2, verse 3. You were born into this world with a sinful nature and with a disposition to rebel against God. You were a child of wrath. And if you are not a Christian, you remain a child of wrath. But when God moves upon the heart and provides faith to believe, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, when God does that, does that it's a game changer. That a person goes from being a child of wrath to a child who is loved by God. Positionally speaking, your standing before God dramatically changes. You were an object of God's wrath because of your sin, but now, Christian, and this is part of the good news of the gospel, He lavishes His love upon you. He lavishes it upon you. Like, isn't that good news? In classical times, so we're, we're taking a time machine backwards here to the first century, the word beloved in verse 1 was often used in reference to a family that had only one child. The idea was that a single child received all the time, all the attention, all the security, and all of the inheritance from their parents. So, In the same way you, Christian, receive maximum time, attention, security, and an inheritance from a father who loves you. I mean, just like, let that sink in. Let me plainly ask you the question. Do you allow God to call you beloved? Do you receive that from him? If not, maybe abundantly clear. You, Christian, are beloved by God as his child. Let that sink in. And as one who is loved or beloved by God, you are to imitate God. I mean, 
have you ever used an ink stamp? Uh, growing up, when my kids were a little younger, they loved using these ink stamps. They had like maybe like a princess or a unicorn on the original, and you put it into the ink, and then you put it on the paper. And what do you have? You have a copy. To imitate God means to copy or, in, in another sense, clone God. To be clear, you are not God, but some of his, what we call, communicable attributes or characteristics become yours. You are, they become a part of your life. For example, how many times have you made this observation about parents and kids? I see a lot of this child in your mom, or a lot of this child in your dad. And for some, some, sometimes it's for better or worse, right? <laughs> Depending on what characteristics you're pointing out. But you, you get a sense of what's going on as we're to imitate God. How often do our kids imitate us? Now, there's a big difference between how a children, a child, imitates their parents and how we are to imitate God. As we imitate God, we are very conscious about it. We're not making any assumptions here. Like, just because a Christian, I'm just going to walk my life. No, what we, what we see in Scripture is that we are very conscious about pursuing holiness by pursuing a way of walking that is like God. We are conscious about it. Several times in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We've also run into that kind of imitation, which is also right. It's interesting to me that here and only here, Paul cuts himself out of the picture. He like cuts out the middleman and he says, no, don't worry about me. Just imitate God. (laughs) How do you imitate God? You walk in love. So this word walk is in the present imperative, which is just Greek fancy language, but it's important to help us understand what is actually being conveyed here. It's this customary idea that make this your habit. So we were, what are we supposed to make our habit? Walking in love. So whether you've been walking with Jesus for 20 years or two days, what you need to know is right now as you sit and as you stand up later and hang out, you're to walk in love. Make that your everyday habit. Make it part of your um, spiritual DNA, right? What does that mean to walk in love? How are you to walk in love, right? Where's more of the specifics here? It's a nice idea, but what does that really mean? Well, before I get there, I, I did something that I usually never do. I, I, go- I googled the word love. <laughs> um, over 14, up to 14 billion search results. I didn't go through it, right? But I just saw the, how many results? I'm like, 14 billion? I didn't know the internet could hold that much. It was crazy. But I'm willing to bet that how God defines love is not one of the most popular results. The world around you wants to define love in a myriad of ways that are often wholly and entirely unbiblical. Here's what it means to imitate God and walk in love. Self-sacrifice. Did you get that? How are you to walk in love? Sacrifice. Not the sacrifice of somebody else, but you being willing to sacrifice. If you want to imitate God and walk in love, your focus is to put others before yourself. We see this in verses 3 to 5, that the other path a person walks is out of selfishness. 
You put your needs before someone else. And we'll get to that here in a moment. But the love of God and, the, and your imitation of God looks outward. It looks outward. It says in Ephesians 5, 2, that Christ loved you and gave himself up for you. That is how the Apostle Paul qualifies walk in love. It's clear and obvious that the sacrificial death of Christ is the example we are to look to as we attempt to walk in love. The supreme example of love is Christ giving himself up for you. Let's look at his self-sacrifice in more detail. Jesus says these words in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. Now, he just begins like that. I am the good shepherd. You're not the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. You're a sheep. He's the shepherd. I'm a sheep. He's the shepherd. He's the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Then Jesus continues, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me. And as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. What is Jesus saying here? Out of love, Jesus puts you before himself. The death and crucifixion of Jesus happened because your sin and rebellion is disgusting before a just and holy God. You deserve all the consequences of being a child of wrath. The only way the wrath of God could be appeased or satisfied is for the Father to send the Son to show another way for you to walk. It takes Jesus to show you a better way to walk that ultimately led to his suffering and his death. And Jesus took your place at the cross because he deeply loves you. Jesus took your place so that you could learn how to walk in love. Any definition of love is either faulty or ill-defined unless you understand it through the prism of the gospel and what it means to walk in love. Our text says that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is a, a fragrant or sweet aroma to God. Christ willingly gave up himself as an offering and it was pleasing to God. It was pleasing to God. Out of almost 13, 14 billion search results about love, and 99.9% of the results don't come close to telling you what love really is. Those results, Google results, don't want to tell you the price of true love. It does not want to tell you that the acts of love by Christ for you, Christian, is actually pleasing to God. In light of what we see in Ephesians 5, Christians are to take on a spirit and attitude of Christ so that when we turn around and interact with others, the love of God is on display through us. In several weeks, it's going to get real practical when we begin to look at the details of some of the most intimate relationships in our life, right? Parenting. <laughs> we're going to look at parenting, what it means to love your children well, for children to love their parents. We're, we're, going, to, we're going to talk about marriage. That comes up in Ephesians. 
What does it mean to love well in marriage? We're just talking about the everyday relationships we have with one another. It's going to get real practical in several weeks. For now, let me just ask, how are you treating your spouse? How are you treating your children, your coworkers? Like, how are you treating the person you vehemently disagree with on all the COVID stuff, right? Like, do you have a reflex in a disposition to love, even though there might be disagreements? And are you willing to walk in love by sacrificing perhaps your preferences or opinions? Are you willing to tackle that sin habit out of love for others and for God? Are you willing to lay down something that might not be sinful, you might just enjoy, but it's a clear barrier between you and someone else? You, you see how walking in love invokes action and choices? Listen, the Christian life is not first and foremost about do's and don'ts. And I, I, I could imagine someone hearing this might be like, well, this all sounds like legalism. No, it's, it's not. I don't want you to hear that. Yes, there are commands from God that we are to obey. To obey and there is a way to not, to, there's, a, there's a way to walk that does not honor God. But here's what you need to see first and foremost. You're actually called to imitate God. That's the perspective that we have. We are to imitate God. You imitate Christ through self-sacrifice by putting the needs of others before yourself. You just take that one principle and begin to, yes, walk it out. I mean, you, you see radical change in your life, in your relationships. When you walk in love, God is pleased. When you walk in love through sacrifice, Yes, that fragrant offering is being made to God. Now, let's look at the other way a person can walk. Let's call it the uh, Stephen Tyler Aerosmith way to walk. This way is not self-sacrificial, but it's what I'm calling self-idolatry. Idolatry shows up in verse 5. Self-idolatry is this hyper-focus on satisfying the desires of the self. This way of walking does not look outward others it looks inward in most of your english bibles verse 3 begins with the conjunction but b-u-t the word is a conjunction singling a contrast with what has already been spoken the apostle paul compares and contrasts all the time in his epistles and we see this similar dynamic back in ephesians 3 here paul is effectively saying now walk this way and do not walk that way In other words, there is a way to walk that does not honor God and is not consistent with the gospel. So we have basically two categories to use to describe describe walking. A person can walk in self-idolatry by what they say and with their conduct. What you say and how you act matters to God and reflects your nature. Let's first look at the warning about speech. Here's verse 4 of Ephesians 5. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. In this verse, Paul uses uh, a few Greek words that only find its place in this verse. And it's about how we speak to one another. Regarding what we say, there's an obvious category that comes to mind about what we should or should not say. Like, I grew up in a home that unfortunately lived out verse, <laughs> verse 4. And looking back, I see how my words were used. I 
did not intend to encourage and edify others, but I, I tore them down. My words were used for selfish gain. Much of my, my words growing up were about what Sean Powers can get out of this. How can Sean Powers make himself feel better? Oh, there's an easy way. I'll just cut down the person with my words. We read this in James 3, verses 8 to 10. No human being can tame the tongue. If you pause for a moment, if, if you struggle with how you use your words, I would encourage you to go back and reread James 3. This was revolutionary for me after I became, after the Lord saved me and I began to figure out what does it mean to be a Christian. James 3 is so helpful. No human being can tame the tongue, he says. It is a relentless evil, full of this deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse. And we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. For from the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, James ends, these things ought not to be so. So what we say matters. The words that come out of our mouth and off our lips they matter there are there are swear words we don't use because they degrade another person right we have a category for swear words and we can all create similar lists in our heads so if we all like compared a list and we were like okay what are swear words that are you know on your list what's on my list what's on your list we can probably come to some of the same conclusions maybe the line's a little different for everyone but there's certainly words we do not use because they debase and they degrade other people but more is being communicated about how we are to speak to others. Christians must not involve themselves, what does our text say? In crude joking. It's an interesting way to think. Now, crude, now joking with friends, right, uh, is good. It's healthy. Like, I love a good belly laugh when that happens. It's just, it's fun. It's, it's good to laugh. But we also know when joking can cross a line. The line is often crossed when humor is used at the expense of someone else. Uh, recently, like as of I think Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, I removed my, my wife and I removed ourselves from our extended family text chain. Uh, it was like 15 to 20 of us. And we've been on it for years. And, and a lot of it's sports, Minnesota Viking stuff, whatever but also gets political. And uh, one of the reasons why we removed ourselves from the list is because of the crude joking. Right? It's not that we couldn't handle it. But you, at some point you ask the question, why would I even want to put that in front of my eyes? Right? And when I, you know what I found in my own heart? My heart began to get hard because I was so frustrated with all the crude joking. And I don't want my heart, my heart to be hard toward my family, many who do not, do not know the Lord. Here's what's going on in your heart when you participate in crude joking. You are satisfying a fleshly and sinful desire. You prop up yourself by cutting down others. Verse 4 also mentions foolish talk, right? It's foolish talk that I think Christians need to be more, even more careful with. Uh, a scholar, uh, George Bertram, thinks foolish talk has reference not only to silly talk, think about kids just talking silly, but also talk that is empty and speculative. 
we might say foolish talk is like engaging in uh, conspiracy theories. Oh yeah, I'm going there. (laughs) I'm going there. I don't know about you, but there's a gluttony of conspiracy theories in our day. (laughs) Google that. I'm sure you're going to get, you know, 50 billion (laughs) results about conspiracy theories. Now, while I want to encourage you all with my entire heart to think critically and think well about what's going on, the things you're putting in front of your eyes and the things that are being said, I think we need to be very careful about engaging conspiracy theories. There is a difference between thinking and speaking critically and then talking nonsense. Now, I know I can be tempted to believe some strange ideas, but here's where foolish talk can keep you and me from walking the wrong path. Foolish talk and engaging in nonsense on social media, for example, does not edify your faith or the faith of another person. Right? One of my concerns with the church, broadly speaking, is that we spend more time talking about nonsense than we do talking about the Lord. Like, was there really a moon landing? Like, that's my favorite conspiracy theory. Like, was it really? Come on, no way, you know. I've been rebuked on that one. Thanks, Ryan. (laughs) Right? Like, you get tempted. Like, did it really happen? But you know what? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Let's talk about that because he did rise from the dead. He rose. We sang it this morning. That is a much more profitable conversation than whatever conspiracy theory you want to engage in. That is much more profitable, much more edifying. Let's talk about that. Our speech and the words that pour forth from our mouth can be a wonderful tool if we're willing to use our words well. Whether it's in the body of Christ, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's with your kids. They're a wonderful tool if you're willing to use your words well. But what does Holy Scripture say at the end of verse 4, right? We want to use our words to speak thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. We want to speak words of thanksgiving out of a heart of gratitude. So your words matter. And I want to encourage you all to heed the warning to not walk in a way, not to talk in a way that dishonors God by speaking foolishly. That's not walking in love. But use your speech proclaiming thanksgiving. That honors God. And that is another way to walk in love. So our speech matters. Now our conduct This verse says a lot about our conduct. Look at verse 3 and then verse 5. Do you see a pattern? So we got some conduct language in verse 3. And then in verse 4, it's about how you talk. And in verse 5, Paul is going back to what he already said in verse 3. There's a pattern there. These three practices Christians are to abstain from. Sexual morality, impurity, and covetousness. These three practices are born out of a heart of self-idolatry. The practice of sexual morality, impurity, and covetousness are selfish, evil, and wicked. I'll take them one at a time briefly. The Greek word for sexual morality is pornea. I don't, I don't need to say anything else. You know where that's going, right? That's the Greek word for sexual morality, pornea. The Greek word for sexual morality is often used in the New Testament, and it has a very broad um, understanding and, and translation. The context helps determine what, we're gonna, what word we're going to use in the English here. So here we have sexual morality from pornea. But here's the bottom line. 
Sexual relations that do not take place between a husband and wife fall outside God's design. That's what we know from Scripture. Sexual relations that do not take place between a husband and wife fall outside of God's design. Christians are not to practice that. When you do practice that, you are not walking in love. In our culture, in what I just said, is now viewed as radical. Have you noticed that? I'm sure you have. It is viewed as radical. However, if you affirm the authority of the Bible, then you have to be compelled to see this issue no other way. If you, if you say, yes, the Bible is authoritative in my life, you have to be compelled to see this issue in no other way. If you read Romans 1, verses 18 to 25, I won't read it, There is no doubt that the disregard of God's design and sexuality is 100% due to idolatry. It's due to self-idolatry. It's all about making sexuality about your desires and preferences. Now, if you're like me and you have a past that that has disregarded God's design, I want to say this. There, and you know this, There's been an abundance of grace upon your life from God, right? God grants forgiveness of your sin, but now going forward, right? Going back to what what walking is being said here, going forward to walk out God's design for our good and to display God's glory because walking out God's design for sexuality is walking in love. So regardless of where you've been, I'm asking the question, where are you going? How are you going to walk out? God's design, in particular, to walk in love. The second practice in question is impurity. Certainly, sexual morality is is impure, but more is being conveyed by Paul. If you are impure, your entire being is being defiled. An impure life is brought about by sin. Any reader of the Bible knows many commands from God to not sin. But it might be best to say, in light of our passage, that an impure life is brought about when you're not walking in the love of God. Therefore, the path toward pursuing biblical love is walking in purity, pursuing purity. And then the third practice is covetousness. The root of covetousness, you know, getting down to covet, is pride. When you covet a sinful desire, um, pride is like just taking root in your heart. When you covet, you become discontent with what God has given you. A proud heart is not grateful. (laughs) When Moses was rolling out the Ten Commandments, he said this in the Tenth Commandment, you should not covet your neighbor's house, you should not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, I don't think, I don't know any of you have like an ox or a donkey. I think the only family who could come close to that might be ours. Uh, But in your head and your heart, you know what's being communicated here, right? You know what's being communicated. We constantly want what we do not have. And coveting anything that is not yours is not walking in love. We constantly covet what we do not have. I could give you the most shiny object, brand new you know, computer, let's say like technology, could give you a brand new computer. It's the top of the line. You know what? In one week, you're going to want the, something better. 
We constantly want what we do not have. And that, when that happens, we're just walking in selfishness. So we're told from God's word that our speech matters and our conduct needs to align with what it means to love others well. So I want to end with two thoughts that I've been mulling over as I've been studying Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 5. First, why is it important for the church to be distinct from the world while remaining in the world? Why is that important? Because what we're being presented with in this passage is, yes, a very distinct way to live and to not live, right? Why is that important? That's the first thought. Second, what is the end game of striving to be distinct by walking in a radical, countercultural, sacrificial love? What is the end game here? First, our passage is really clear about two different ways of walking, two different visions of living your life. When your conduct and speech is molded and shaped around God's love, the world will see Christ in you. You become, in many ways, a mini-Christ. Hence the name Christian. <laughs> the world will see Christ in you. Christians have a reflex to pursue love so that the love of Christ would be on display. That's our reflex. We want to pursue love. You are a witness to a world that lacks true and lasting love. Now, the end game of our faith and, and faithful living is this inheritance that we keep seeing over and over in the book of Ephesians, that Christians have an inheritance. For those on the Stephen Tyler track, there is no inheritance in the kingdom of God, verse 5. But for those who walk in love, the greatest inheritance awaits. Yes, heaven is real, and we all can't wait for what God has in store, but our greatest inheritance isn't heaven, but it's the one who sits on the throne in heaven, Christ. That is our greatest inheritance. And here's the big takeaway. How we walk, the choices we make, indicates who we are and where we are going. And where we are going, there awaits our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.